I didn't really ever have the luxury to totally abandon the Bible, mm. or at least I didn't take the option to. And so I slowly started to work my way back toward it. And what I discovered is if you can, and again, this might take some time for people, but if you can set it aside, all of those messages that have been sort of, uh, crammed into your consciousness about what the Bible is and isn't. If you can set it, if you can relax a bit, that the Bible doesn't have to be inerrant. Mm. The Bible doesn't have to be infallible. If you can relax that the Bible doesn't have to be perfect, that it doesn't have to, um, if you can relax on that and maybe just take it for what it is, not for what people have told you that it is, then suddenly all sorts of new possibilities emerge. Friends, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn and uh, this is episode number 96. And it's part number one of our new series called Books My Friends Wrote. And I have four of my friends who are coming on the podcast this month to talk about new books that they have uh, written. Some have released maybe a month or so ago. Uh, some have released uh, just a, like a week ago. Some are going to be released in a month or so. So all different types of people uh, coming on to share some of their passions and some of the stories and some of the insights uh, in their books. So I'm excited. Today, uh, we bring on the man, the myth, the legend. Um, as I say in the episode, the pastor with the greatest beard, uh, Colby Martin, who's going to talk to us about his new book, uh, The Shift. And the subtitle of this, which I love, is Surviving and Thriving After Moving from Conservative to Progressive Christianity. This is an episode you need to hear. And I love Colby. He lives in uh, San Diego. I live in North Carolina. And I said to him um, after the episode, I was like, man, I wish that like we were neighbors or that we at least lived like in the same area because uh, once COVID stuff is kind of on its way out, uh, I would love to just get together with you and hang out and learn from you. Um, you're going to hear in this episode, he is just so gracious in the way he deals uh, with questions and the way that he talks about this movement from conservative to progressive Christianity. Um, he has been doing this for a long time. He's been in this process for a long time. He pastors a church uh, that ministers to a lot of people who are moving, kind of evolving and growing and kind of in this wilderness of figuring out uh, where they are after maybe leaving the more conservative evangelical wing of the faith, so to speak. So he's a great guy. You're going to love the episode. I highly encourage you, please, for the love of God, go and get this book. Uh, you will not be sorry. It's an easy, quick read that is jam-packed with insights uh, that you will find helpful. So I will put the link to it um, in the show notes. Go and pick it up. A few things. Uh, number one, patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show uh, financially. And so if this podcast has encouraged you at all, uh, please consider going over there, joining the other 25 people. There's different tiers of giving, $3, $7, $20, $30. Every tier gets its own reward. Uh, so kind of my gift to you uh, for supporting the show. So go check it out. Uh, again, the link will be in the show notes. What if Project Community is a place where you can go to on Facebook? It's a it's a closed private, I guess. I don't know. It's a closed Facebook group. Uh, so not like anybody can just go in there and post. And it's a place where like everybody's gathering. Lots of people who have lots of questions, lots of doubts. They're kind of in the wilderness. They're rethinking uh, maybe the traditions that they grew up with in terms of their faith and God and the Bible and spirituality, Jesus, hell, LGBTQ stuff. Lots of different ideas in there coming from lots of different people. Uh, nobody is shaming somebody else or trying to convert somebody. We're all just getting along, cheering each other on, and uh, sharing different ideas. So go check that out. I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. And last but not least, 
uh, the What If Project shop, the Heretic shop. We got t-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, stickers, all sorts of heretical slogans on them. So go check that out as well. Uh, I will put that in the show notes too. Special music today is from DJ KDOT. Um, I work with her. She's one of the most encouraging people that I know. Uh, So go check her music out, listen to it, download it, share it, pass it around. Uh, She's on Apple Music, Spotify, all the places. Uh, DJ KDOT, I will put that in the show notes as well. So with all of that being said, without further ado, as they say, uh, this is episode number 96, and it's my talk with Mr. Pastor, the one and the only, Colby Martin. Enjoy. Uh, friends, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we are joined by repeat guest, and uh, by far I think the coolest pastor I know, uh, the one and the only, uh, the man with the best beard, Colby Martin. Okay, welcome Glenn, back to the podcast. <laughs> you must not, you must not know very many pastors, right? Oh, come on, I mean, come on. This is that is kind of you to say. Yeah. <laughs> so for our listeners, uh, Colby has recently released a brand new book that I have in front of me uh, called The Shift, and it's subtitled. Uh, surviving and thriving after moving from conservative to progressive Christianity. But first, I'm curious, uh, how has the launch been? I mean, as of this recording, it launched yesterday. And last night you had that wild star-studded extravaganza on Facebook Live. So Brian McLaren and many others uh, showed up. So first of all, how was that? Like, how did that feel for you? And then like, what has the response been today on day two? Yeah, you're getting me in sort of the the afterglow all day. I've just been smiling, um, mm-hmm. delighting in how fun last night was. Uh, yeah, so if someone is listening to this and they have some time to kill because a lot of us right now might have more time to watch things, uh, yeah, head on over to my YouTube or uh, Facebook page and, and check out the, uh, as Glenn called this, uh, book release live stream extravaganza. Yes. Uh, yes yesterday was uh, was the launch of uh, my next book, as you just said. And last night, you know, I thought because originally, Glenn, I had a multi city tour lined mm-hmm. up. Uh, I had uh, I was going to have a big party here in San Diego on Friday, April twenty fourth, at a local brewery, inviting a bunch of friends, buying a beer and appetizers, and just doing this big in person. So I had all these plans, right? Mm. And then, you know, coronavirus comes and um, suddenly mother necessity invited us to birth all sorts of new inventions. And I thought, well, what can I still do that celebrates the book launch Mm. um, that I would enjoy? Maybe that other people haven't done yet. I mean, that's my kind of, I'm a strong Enneagram three and I've got a four (laughs) wing that likes to be unique and different. So part of me was like, all right, let's, let's do something that people haven't done. And uh, yeah. yeah, And so I came up with this idea to have this uh, live event on Facebook where I would have guests scheduled all throughout the night to to come on um, authors uh, like Glennon Doyle, Brian McLaren, Kristen Howerton, uh, podcast personalities like Kevin Garcia and Heathen Podcast. And then I had some musicians hop on for some live music. I was doing Your giveaways <laughs> all night long. Yeah, my brother was yeah. one of them who's phenomenal. Uh, so it really, man, it was just, it was so much fun. And the only thing I was worried about is that the technology wouldn't hold. I was going to ask, did you like rehearse? Did you like check everything? Like how did you make I spent, sure that all that was going to work? <laughs> yeah, I spent a solid two weeks leading up to the event trying to find the right wow. combination of um, online platforms and software uh, so that, and, and I was just, it was, <laughs> that was the most work, honestly, it was yeah. all the research and all the failed attempts of trying to get <laughs> things to work. But finally, uh, I stumbled into the right platform and was able to build all the graphics and all the scenes and it integrated beautifully with Skype uh, video. So it just, 
and the technology held man so i was able to have just a blast interacting with the hundreds of people that were on and commenting and it was yeah so to answer your question i'm doing great i'm a little tired but it's like a good tired it's a it's a it's a yeah it's just a That's glow awesome. from a really really fun night I think my favorite part was when Brian McLaren was on and your wife was like nerding out in the background. (laughs) (laughs) She was like waving. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you, man. I'm very happy for you. Um, The book felt uh, very personal to me. Like your other book on clobber, you know, also very personal, but this book really felt like you just kind of spilled your guts right on page one. Like really just came out with your story. And before we kind of go into that, um, could you give us a brief, maybe synopsis of what this book is about? Why did you write it? Who is it for? What exactly is um, a shift? We are witnessing right now, and when I say we, I'm mostly speaking to kind of this Western American Christian culture. Mm. We are... I mean we're different than everybody else? <laughs> I, I mean, we're just, we're <laughs> our own species. We uh, we're in our own, our sort of own pocket of, of time. Yep. Um, and it's the we that I know best. So mm-hmm. that's, um, I just want to clarify that. Um, but we are witnessing and have been for several years now, this, this, uh, this mass exodus away from, for lack of a better term, conservative Christianity or evangelical Christianity, yeah. this mass exodus out of that. And, you know, some people end up just finding themselves in camps of uh, agnosticism or the spiritual nuns. And they're just sort of, nowhere but mm. there are there are many who are leaving conservative christianity or maybe have been kicked out of their conservative churches or communities or families and are still finding themselves on some sort of faith spiritual journey that might have some connection still to the tradition and the heritage of christianity but it is much more now the term I use is progressive. Um, people might resonate with the term liberal or left or open or inclusive, whatever. It's it's a journey away from conservative and towards a more progressive expression of the Christianity. Mm. And what I have, and I have over the last six years in my in my ministry with church and with uh, my first book, and um, I have engaged now with hundreds, if not thousands, of people who have undergone, and I call this the shift. The shift mm. is moving away from conservative and journeying towards progressive Christianity. It is remarkable to me, Glenn, how um, how common uh, the experiences are for people who are on the shift. Like every person's stories and their details are all uh, unique and specific. I don't want to take away from that, but the similarities that show up, the uh, the, the the fear of of no longer having the certainty that used to bring so much comfort, the um, the resentment of feeling like you were burdened with all these beliefs that you didn't ask to have implanted into your brain, uh, the the anger of of, of people who are now treating you differently because what your beliefs changed um, mm-hmm. the loneliness uh, just the mass loneliness right now is uh, is no small matter yeah. uh, people who no longer have faith communities or, or, or friend groups or even families for many people it's so lonely so I started noticing all these uh, uh, shared experiences and I thought you know what if if there's any way that I can step into that space, that transition space, that liminal space between conservative and progressive Christianity, if there's any way that I can get into there and help people kind of survive some of those obstacles mm. and maybe offer just these morsels of glimpses of, of ways that they might even then move to thrive in that process. Um, that's what, that's what the book's about, man. Mm. That's what it's about right there. It's just trying to help people survive the obstacles in their shift and thrive in sort of this uh, more open and expansive uh, and gracious uh, way of being in the world. Mm. I think that's part of the reason why it felt so personal for me is because when I was reading it, it was almost like it's Colby following me around. Like, does he see like living <laughs> in my brain? <laughs> like, and throwing answers to the questions that I have because really each chapter takes a different part of this journey and really just speaks to it, I think, in a really encouraging way. So uh, for our listeners, I will put it in the show notes and uh, Colby will put like subliminal messages throughout the podcast to get people to just go and buy it. They've already been happening. That's right. They're already happening. I don't even know it, (laughs) but they're already happening. (laughs) So uh, maybe let's get into some of the specifics um, of the book. We don't want to give away all of the pearls of wisdom, of course, but 
um, I wanted to ask you a, a few questions that I had while I was reading. And the first thing is I wanted to know a little bit more about that experience you described, like starting on page one, uh, you were at that annual men's retreat. Uh, one of the speakers said something that perhaps, you know, pulled out that bottom block of the tower, started to shift a little bit and started to rethink things. Like maybe talk to us about, about that moment. Like take us back to that beginning of your deconstruction, your shift, like what was going on in your mind? How did it feel? Uh, what was the wrestling like for you? Yeah. So the earliest memory that I have of when I started to discern that, that the clothes of conservative Christianity were not fitting anymore. <laughs> the earliest memory that I have was, and you talk, and this is how, like you said, I opened the book, was that day a men's camp at the church that I was working at. It was a large um, evangelical mega church uh and i was at this men's retreat and was this I the cma church we talked about on the last time this was the cma yes. church okay. good, okay. good callback glenn <laughs> there you go you're on your game <laughs> i don't know what the speaker said that night it probably had nothing to do with what happened in my own heart later but whatever it was i was lying in bed unable to sleep and the thought that kept running through my head that night was and it felt so random to me and yet i couldn't get it out of my brain it was just rattling around in there was this idea of why do we and for me at that time we was christians that's just i had mm -hmm. one understanding of of what it meant to be a christian why do we insist that the mercy of god suddenly ceases upon the moment of our death yeah why do we insist? And, and, and I started thinking about the Bible verses, like the, the love and the mercy of God and, you know, endures forever is un, this unchanging mercy of God. And yet we, we, we teach that actually, no, you can, you can experience God's mercy before you die, but then after you die, mm. like whatever decision you have made, whether you get to go to heaven or you get to go to hell, that is locked in. There's no mercy for you at that point. You can't mm. change your mind. You don't get a second chance. You don't get some sort of like, oh, you know what? Actually, your life on earth, you never had a freaking chance to figure out yeah, right. what any sort of <laughs> correct answer was. Uh, you were born in some country that had no concept of this, or you were born in such a, uh, a traumatic and abusive situation that you had no hope of the, whatever it was. Now, this is, you know, back in my conservative theological days, <laughs> so this is what I was thinking, but I'm like, how, why are we in where does this come from this idea that god is no longer merciful just because we die yeah. we don't get to have any control over when we die we don't yeah. get to have any control over what happens when we live in terms of where we're born or who we're born to or what we believe growing up and yet we die and that's the end of mercy so that was the thought that mm -hmm. i just couldn't get out of my head um and, and i just that was the yeah you talked about that was like the first jenga piece and i wouldn't even say it was at the bottom yet i wasn't I wasn't near the bottom. I was just sure. kind of in the middle, just sort of tapping on the loose. Suddenly this brick was really loose. And you know how you just kind of tap it from one end, yep. hoping to jostle <laughs> it enough to grab it from the other? That night I was just tapping this brick of, of, of my belief structure, my system of the things that I thought were true. And suddenly I couldn't convince myself that God's mercy has a stopping point just because the blood stops flowing in our veins and the breath stops pumping in our lungs. Yeah. I, that resonates with me because I've told this story in the podcast a bunch of times, but for me, um, it was Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, that really started to pick at some of those bricks in my own tower. And yeah. uh, one of the questions that I came in with that book was, we get to heaven and we don't believe the right things about God. It's almost like we're God's enemy. And so we go to hell. And I'm like, but wait a minute. Like Jesus spent his whole life telling people to forgive, to love their enemies. And then I get to heaven and the same God who has told me to do this. No supreme. Like, what, <laughs> yeah, what is it? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like yeah. for all of my life, it made sense. But then all of a sudden it was that question popped into my mind. And I'm like, there's no answer for this. It literally yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. And isn't it wild how sometimes those things will just they'll burrow in your brain in a way yeah. that suddenly like. I couldn't let it go. You couldn't let it go. And you're like, how could I have never thought of this before? And for me, and, and I say this at one point in the book later on in one of the later chapters, I say those moments of that sort of radical um, brick knocking, faith altering, belief shifting moments, they 
seem to come almost from out of nowhere. And we generally don't have much to do. Like now, granted you made the choice to read a book. So maybe you can, you can contribute, you can attribute some of that to your will, your choices. But my point is, is a lot of us who've gone through the shift, it's almost like a thing that just happened to us more than a conscious decision that we sat down one day and we're like, all right, I need to assess where I'm at with all my beliefs and right. I'm going to begin now. Yeah. Right. And if this leads to some sort of transformative shift, so be it. But I'm just like, nobody really does that. These things just happen. They happen to us and in us and through us. And I think one of the beautiful things about that for me is for me, that's an act of grace, this sort of undeserved favor, the sort of this expanding of our hearts and minds that we really don't have any, um, we didn't contribute to it just sort of happened. And when we can receive that as, as grace, as gift of like, Whoa, Mm -hmm. I am where I am today, almost through like, no thanks to me. I just sort of, sort of hear that sort of openness to our own growth. Yeah. I think can, and maybe I'll even say ought lead us to a posture of, 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 of orienting ourselves towards others with this immense posture of grace being like, Hey, suddenly I don't want to try to control you or control what you believe or control what you think. And even if it's wildly different from me, I can't really expect you to change just because I want you to change because my change happened just in me and through yeah. me. I didn't really have much to do with it. You, do you know what I'm saying? Does that make, does that 100%. make sense? Uh, yeah. And I think one of the things I think, I think it was Rob Bell or maybe it was Richard Rohr. One of those guys said, you know, one of the ways that you can look at somebody who's maybe um, not where you are in your faith Maybe they're on the more conservative side. You're on the on the progressive side. Is to look at that person and see yourself in that person. And when you can have enough grace on yourself to realize where you used to be, you can then translate that to have grace on that person to where they are. And maybe one day they will be where you are. Maybe they won't be. But there's hope for 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 them to keep evolving in their faith, whatever direction that might lead them. Yeah, and it's not. It's just. It's not our our responsibility to 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 change other people's beliefs. Now, that's not to say that we we there aren't still. You know, there are beliefs that people hold that can and do lead to uh, very troublesome, um, real life consequences in the world. Yeah, yeah. And so, when those beliefs are are at play. Uh, I think we do have some sort of responsibility to engage with that. 100%. But I think that I think there's there's a there's a difference there between engaging with beliefs that cause sort of injustice and harm to the world um, versus trying to force someone else to to think and believe what we want them to think and believe. Yeah, like I never see the prophets in the Bible trying to force people to believe something. But you better bet your bottom dollar they spoke out against things that were unjust, yeah. things that were yeah. wrong, things that were evil, causing pain in the world. So one of the things that you uh, talk about in the book is how uh, your shift has impacted the way you think about and you talk about God. And uh, one of the things you say, and for our listeners, I'm going to read this quote, uh, is not using pronouns for God has been a commitment of mine since 2012. Um, I realize it sounds weird to anniversarize uh, when I stopped referring to God as he, but I share that because it illustrates the process of journeying toward a more progressive form of Christianity. So talk to us a little bit about this because last year and our listeners might remember this, but I did, I did a solo podcast episode uh, where I just sat down with my mic and did this like little, you know, homily slash sermon type thing. And I, I talked about this and it was a series called uh, lies we believe about God. And the lie I was addressing was that God is a man. And so you can imagine that caused like no controversy at all. You know, <laughs> it was very easy, but dude, I mean, you would have thought like I suggested that we, should convert our churches into temples of Satan because like people got really upset. I mean, some people are sending me, you know, messages and stuff. And I was like, wow, I wasn't expecting this huge, you know, this huge thing to blow up, but talk to me about, you know, this part of your journey. Like, what does that look like for you? Maybe some of your thoughts around, you know, why God isn't a straight white dude, because literally that's how I grew up thinking about God, that he's this straight man. He might or may not have a beard and he's definitely a white guy and he's up in heaven. And he's in this big seat. And like now, obviously all of that has changed for me, but what does that look like for you? I think where I'd start in response to that is by acknowledging that there is, there's a lot at stake Hmm. for uh, those for whom a statement such as God is not male or those who maybe took 
issue or really had a hard time with your, your series that you referenced, there's a lot at stake for them in yeah. that. Uh, and I, and I have a lot of compassion for that. Mm. I understand, like, I understand, um, because I, I was there for a good portion of my life. Like there's a, there's a lot at stake and it's not, it's not so much that people are, you know, at least I found they're not arguing for and defending that God is man or God is a man. Like, so that there's somewhere there is a physical being that has some sort of like divine genitalia. It's not so much like, I know you said that you sort of grew up thinking that, and I know that in my own way I did too, but at some point we did, I think, grow up enough to be like, okay, those were just early metaphors. We may not actually think God has a body and and a male genitalia out there, but Mm. we still sort of, we still sort of think that way, but we don't. It's this weird, we kind of hold the metaphor a little too uh, tightly. Sure. So it's not that people I think are mostly arguing that God is man, but what's at stake for them is, um, one of the biggest things at stake is, is, uh, is the way that they view the Bible. And mm-hmm. so because the Bible refers not exclusively, right? There are, there are more than, more than enough uh, references in the Bible to God as uh, feminine, but predominantly God is referred to as he and father. And so because the Western conservative evangelical um, Christian teaching is that the entire Bible is without error and that if just one part of it is wrong, then that must mean the whole thing is wrong. Then what's at stake is to, if you acknowledge that God is either not male or more than male, then it begins to mess with your entire understanding of the Bible. And so that's, that's a serious um, stake. Yeah. And so it's understandable to me that people react and, and sort of gets uh, fearful around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I think that's just one level. I think another level is that we have sort of as a society deeply embedded these ideas that maleness is closer to godness, godness is closer to maleness, and, and suddenly there's a, a, a hierarchy where maleness is better than femaleness. And again, all but the most ardent sort of misogynist a-holes, you know, they're not going to say outright that men are better than women. And yet this is sort of how we operate and think at sort of these pre-conscious subconscious levels. And so we, in our minds, if God is male, then to be male is to be God. Therefore, femininity is less than like we want to move in the direction of whatever godliness is, which happens to, you know, in this construct, be more male oriented. And this for me, as I say in the book, this was part of why I was a, a progressively minded Christian in a lot of ways for a number of years before I finally was able to transition out of thinking of just God in terms of male Um, because I had my own, and this was just my journey. I had my own deeply uh, repressed sort of misogyny and belief that maleness is better than femaleness Mm -hmm. in part because that was the culture that I was raised in. It was the society that I was raised in. I got that in the church world. I got that in TV. I got that in movies and music. And so I had to confront all of that and get all of that up to the surface to where I could then begin to, to relax and let go of this. Oh, yeah, God's not a man. Hmm. God's not a man. So that was a, a, a quite a journey for me. Um, but I do, I empathize with those for whom that is a very threatening um, idea uh, because yeah. yeah, lots at stake. And I love the way you, you gracefully kind of answered that because I think is, is an important lesson, I think, for all of us to learn who are in the midst of this shift is that, you know, we, we've spent some time processing some of this stuff. And sometimes it can be very easy to throw out our conclusions without throwing out some, without also talking about some of the, the background to the conclusions that we've come to. Yeah. And I think for myself, like, especially I look back on that, I was more like a bull in a china shop, you know, kind of coming through with my conclusion that I've drawn after really years and years of thinking about this. And I didn't really necessarily address the underbelly of it as well as I addressed the conclusion. Mm. And I think had I kind of, if I could go back now, I think I would have addressed those other things that you talked about, about, you know, when we attack this idea, it's almost like we're attacking this spider web of other things as well that we need to address in order to come to this conclusion. So I think that it's important for all of us who are going through this shift when we talk to our family and we talk to our friends to recognize that, you know, the, the anger maybe that comes with some of these conclusions is also coming from other places that we need to be mindful of. That's right. That's really good. So let's talk about the Bible. Uh, that's one of the things you just, you just mentioned. Um, 
how has reading the Bible changed for you um, in the midst of your, your shift? I know for me, like I used to see it as the inerrant word of God. You talk about that yep. in your book, you know, it's 100% yep. accurate, literal, you know, that burlap to cashmere song, you know, basic instructions for <laughs> leaving earth, right? Like it's, oh, that's what that's it's all point. about. And uh, you know, I'm saddened to say like looking back over my life, like that mentality is as close as the Bible was to my heart and still is. Um, it often caused me to weaponize the Bible, right? Because like when I had this view that the Bible made it, you know, made everything very clear, it was very easy for me to like load those verses into my machine gun and shoot them at people in an effort to prove myself right and kind of flex my muscle of certainty, like you mentioned earlier. And so maybe talk to us a little bit about um, your journey with the Bible. How has it evolved? How has it, how has it changed? Yeah, I think my journey is is not altogether uh, unique. I think it's it's uh, there's a fairly predictable um, pattern that emerges with this. Um, I would say the only thing I might add to that is that's that uh, it's not uncommon to maybe stall out hmm. at a, at a few spots along the way. So here's what I mean. So yes, like like yourself. Um, I had the same sort of impression of the Bible given to me all throughout growing up and into college and into ministry inspired and errant. And uh, when I began to, you know, knock out some of those Jenga pieces uh, suddenly, you know, I, I was confronted with how the Bible is actually full of internal contradictions mm. that, um, you know, stories just give two, three, four different accounts of what happened. And even though I had been trained in college on all the ways to synthesize that, uh, there comes a point where you're like, okay, hold on, <laughs> hold right. on. We are, this is some real, this is some real magic artistry, uh, hocus pocus stuff we're doing here to make, right. to make one and two equal the same number. Uh, yep. was there one angel or two? Come yeah. on people. Um, so, so going through that process of, starting to realize the Bible is self-contradictory and the mm -hmm. Bible contradicts uh, external things that we know that are true about science. Uh, suddenly um, it just doesn't hold up to scrutiny outside of this closed way of seeing the Bible as the only source of truth. Uh, and so, you know, predictably I, I moved into this sort of resentful, um, annoyed with, um, really I reacted in a way that I was taught to react, which was mm -hmm. if you can't trust one part, you can't trust any of it. Yeah. And so I had to go through this season where I, I didn't really crack open a Bible for a long time. Mm -hmm. And this is meanwhile, I'm in ministry as a pastor, uh, just really had to walk away from it. Be yeah. like, all right, well, you, you're just farcical. Is it farcical or farcical? I think uh, farcical. I think that's okay. the word. Well, I like farcical say, better. That's, I like farcical too. It's kind of a, <laughs> it, it's a, Hey man, if you need a word, you make it up. So I need that one, um, except for there was a word and I just said it wrong. But anyways, uh, so I had to go through that process of kind of, and I think that's where a lot of people in their shift, they find themselves um, sort of this resentful uh, attitude, but not even, actually, that's not even totally fair. A lot of it is people have been uh, really wounded by the Bible. Mm. Like you said, it's been weaponized against them to either, you know, if you're a woman, it's been used to tell you that you're inferior to men. If you're LGBTQ, it's been used to tell you that you're an abomination. Mm. Uh, if, if you are a non-Christian, it's been used to tell you that you're going to hell. So the Bible has been a source of all sorts of uh, harm. And it makes a whole lot of sense. If you're able to walk away from it or given a road away, you're going to take it because yeah. why would you want to stick around to that thing? Um, but I, and maybe this is just sort of a nature of the fact that I've been in full-time ministry now for 14 years or whatever. I didn't really ever have the luxury to totally abandon the Bible, mm. or at least I didn't take the option to. And so I slowly started to work my way back toward it. And what I discovered is if you can, and again, this might take some time for people, but if you can set it aside all of those messages that have been sort of uh, crammed into your consciousness about what the Bible is and isn't, if you can set it, if you can relax a bit, that the Bible doesn't have to be inerrant. Mm. The Bible doesn't have to be infallible. If you can relax that the Bible doesn't have to be perfect, that it doesn't have to, um, if you can relax on that and maybe just take it for what it is, not for what people have, 
told you that it is, then suddenly all sorts of new possibilities emerge and you can begin to uh, sift through the stuff in the Bible that really just doesn't have anything to do with you or doesn't work or is too triggering or um, is completely irrelevant. And you can find all these gems and all the source of inspiration. And you really can find stories. Cause for me, the, the Bible, if nothing else, it is a collection of the struggle of men and women for um, hundreds and thousands of years of, of searching after questions like, who are we? Why are we mm. here? Are there, are there gods? If there are gods, is the one God that's better than all the other gods? If there's just yeah. one God, who is this God? If there is just one God, then what, how might this God want us to live? How, might this, how do we live in relationship to each other, in relationship mm. to the earth? This is like the track record of how men and women for centuries and millennia have been, have been stumbling into these uh, deep, deep truths that have, and, and somehow this book is still here. Like this is amazing to me right. that it has lasted all these years and I get yeah. it. It's also caused wars and it's been the justification for discrimination. Mm. Yes. There's like, there's no world in which we deny that or ignore that. Uh, but the fact that it has also transcended all that tells me that there are some sort of deep layers of truth happening that if we want them to can still incredibly inspire and empower and equip and encourage people uh, to, to find wholeness and to find uh, flourishing and to learn about the divine in themselves and each other. Uh, so for me, I, I still see it today as this sort of inspired collection of um, poetry and songs and stories and letters uh, that really can help humans find more connection with themselves, with each other and with the divine. Yeah. And I think as you, as you look through the Bible and you read the different stories, you really see like an evolution of thinking in terms of totally who, who God yeah. is, how God acts in the world. What does God expect of people? How does God move through different cultures with different types of people. Like you just see that growing like the earlier old Testament through the prophets, obviously, you know, Jesus comes along and it's just, I think if we can look at the Bible like that, we can allow ourselves to enter into that story. All of a sudden we have a freedom to also allow our understanding of God to evolve along with these biblical writers yep. um, as we move into these times that we're in and beyond. And I think that's just such a beautiful way to think about the text as opposed to just this static document that needs to stay exactly the way that it is. That's right. We were, uh, and again, by we Western American Christianity, yep. especially the evangelical flavor, we were taught that the most important thing is to have the correct beliefs. We were yes. taught that what God cares about most are the thoughts that are in between our ears. Mm. And when that's the case, when we are of the opinion and the conviction that the thing that God cares about most is what we believe, then what happens is we do, we see the Bible as this flattened document mm -hmm. where everything is just as true as another thing, or everything is just as correct as another thing. And as you just said, that really cannot match up to what you actually discover in the trajectory of the narrative of the Bible itself. Yeah. That there is, there is growth and maturation and, and evolved understanding. Uh, you know, I mentioned it a, a few minutes ago, like the, the oldest stories in the Old Testament just assumed that Yahweh was one of many gods. Mm. Uh, and so if we see it as a flattened document where everything is just as true as everything else, that fits in this construct of getting it right and correct beliefs is the most important thing. When we can name that that perhaps <laughs> is not what is most important to the divine that we get mm -hmm. the correct beliefs correct. Then we can, like you said, see this growth and this progression and this movement in the Bible and we can allow it in our own selves. We can be like, you know what? I don't, was I the most correct about this belief when I was 12, when I was 16, <laughs> when I was 24, when I was 32, like we're constantly chasing after the correct answer then we're stuck in ha having to choose which version of our own selves was the most yeah. accurate. And really that's just not the point of the game at all. As I see mm -hmm. it. I love it. Last question. Um, you talk in the book about uh, navigating relationships in your life with people who don't approve of your, of your shift. So maybe they're very conservative. Um, you know, Bible is inerrant. Uh, I don't believe the right things. And like I said, you go, you go to hell. And, and I love the things that you said in this part of the book, but a question that I, I was left with 
uh, that's maybe a little bit more personal for me, maybe some of our listeners too, but I often find an added layer of um, difficulty in this topic as someone who used to be a pastor uh, who was trained for ministry and Bible theology, et cetera, because the, the shame that comes with that often feels maybe a little bit heavier, like a little added pressure. Like not only did I betray my church, you know, my family, whatever, but I, I've betrayed my education. I've betrayed my calling. I've betrayed all of the people who have ever sat under my teaching. Like they've been called a wolf, you know, false prophet, false teacher, leading people to hell. You know, there's special judgment awaiting teachers who lead people astray. So like talk to that person who maybe is or was in some form of ministry, maybe they're a pastor, uh, podcaster like myself, whatever. Uh, they're, they're in the spotlight in some way, big or small, and they're taking heat from, from family, from maybe professors, from their, their past, old church members. Like as a, as a pastor yourself who's living this life yourself and you've obviously dealt with this kind of criticism, like what is your advice for those people um, in particular? Yeah. So what's coming up for me as you, as you shared um, and, and what, what I'm about to say can be taken a number of different ways and it's been used and leveraged in different ways. So mm. there's one version of the thing I'm about to say that we can kind of roll our eyes at and be like, Oh brother, like we've, we've seen that card be played and mm. it's, it's kind of dumb, but I think there's still some value to what I'm about to say. And here's, Here's what I mean. If it is at all comforting to the person that you just described, if it's at all comforting to know, to hear, then may you remember that Jesus himself was attempting to speak to what you might call his version of the conservative religious community. Mm. And he was attempting to give what for them would have been seen as a very progressive, radical expansion of these long held, hard fought doctrinal beliefs and ideas. And he was very much unwelcomed, unappreciated, um, seen as a wolf in sheep's clothing, Mm. cast out as a false teacher and yeah eventually the state's the one that executed him for his threat to empire but make no mistake it was the religious leaders who helped to make that happen Mm. and where i know that gets tricky is we have a lot of sort of the conservative evangelical world that uses the oh well if you're getting persecuted for the lord that means you're doing it right um and so that gets a little bit Mm-hmm. weird when I'm like, Hey, if you're getting persecuted, <laughs> right. Not that card again. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but that's why I say, if we can get past that initial, like not that again, if we can get past that uh, and, and, and maybe hold this idea in a different light, I, I think there's some solidarity there hmm. and it's not going to make, it's not going to make everybody feel better necessarily. Um, but it can maybe help you feel a little less crazy. Yeah that um, it makes a whole lot of sense if when you start questioning long-held beliefs, when you start declaring that you no longer think what you used to think, when you, uh, when you show up at someone's doorstep, it could be metaphorically or literally, when you show up at someone's doorstep offering a, a new message, a new idea, new for you, a new way of thinking, a more expansive, open um, radical way of being in the world and they do not receive it and they do not welcome you in and they reject you. What I hear Jesus saying and very explicitly, cause this is what he told his friends, go out, proclaim the kingdom of God is near. If people receive you, and say peace upon their house but if they do not receive you and again glenn his disciples were going out to the conservative communities Mm, with a progressive 
and I'm not trying to force our situation into that sure. situation. I'm sure. saying just relax a little bit on that and just receive the story for what it is. Jesus saying, go out and bring this message of this kingdom of this more radical, expansive way of seeing things. And Jesus said, if people receive you, great peace upon their house. But if they reject you, Jesus says, then shake the dust from your feet and move on. Mm. And I hear in that, and this is what I say in the book, I hear in that this divine permission slip to accept the rejection of others. Yeah. Mm. And it's not easy. This is not, it's not easy, but it's what I'm, my point is, is it is, it is a uh, acceptable, permissible, and in some ways the, um, the best option that people have is to Jesus, when you hear Jesus say to you, Oh yeah. If they're rejecting you, you have all my permission. In fact, I encourage you to, in fact, I'm instructing you to <laughs> shake the dust off your feet and move on. Yeah. Establish new boundaries with the people who are, 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 who are oppressively not letting you shift and evolve and transform, which is what it is. They're clinging on. They need you to stay where you were because then your, your shifting threatens their own. Right. And so they need you to stay where they are. And when you leave, Yes, they get concerned for your soul in the afterlife, but they also get concerned for what that means for them. And Jesus is saying, like, it's okay and good, and you should put up new boundaries for that. Yeah, that doesn't mean forever. That doesn't mean you're sure. canceling people out of your life, but it yeah. just means because I think a lot of Christianity teaches that it's our job to be reconcilers and to always try and restore relationship and always try and be bridge builders. And sometimes it's like, uh, no shake the dust off your feet and move on yeah. uh, because this right here is not good for anybody. Yeah. So I don't know, that's what comes up for me, but it's, it's really hard. So if you're listening to this and that's the situation that you're in, I want you to know, I'm sorry. I want you to know I'm sorry. And I want you to know that odds are the people in your life that are causing you the most pain, they're causing you pain because on some level they really do love and care for you and they really are afraid and your shift is causing insecurities and they're, belief structures, which again, if we're taught that the most important thing about us is what we think about God, then yeah, that's really scary on yeah. deep, deep levels. Mm. And so it's really hard and it makes sense that you would be um, uh, afraid and, and, and feeling lonely and feeling um, angry. All of that makes sense. Mm. Just know that at least you're in good company. Um, <laughs> and if you need to set up some new boundaries, it's okay. Yeah. It's good. Shake the dust the dust hmm. yeah what you said earlier about you know jesus standing in almost like solidarity with us when we go through those things is is huge i mean the other the other morning it's like a week ago i was having a uh particularly i don't know difficult couple days i guess you could say and i woke up in the morning just very heavy in my spirit you know just kind of wrestling with all these different things that we're talking about and um i sat down to a cup of coffee before anybody was awake open my Bible. And I just, while you're talking, it reminded me, I opened up my journal and um, I read Mark chapter three, verse 21. And Jesus had just got done doing some teaching and um, people, crowds are coming around, they're listening to him. And in verse 21, it says, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him because they thought he was out of his mind. Wow. And I'm, I, when I read that, it was like in my spirit, it was like God whispered and said, I know how you feel. And there was just something in me that just, I just collapsed almost into God's arms. Like I just felt, I just felt like God was standing with me in that moment and just saying, I know exactly how you feel. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's good stuff, man. Yeah. Cause it's, you know, it's a corny thing. Like you said, I mean, you could take it the wrong way. And I'd be like, sure. Well, you know, God knows how you feel. But I think if you really, if you really think about it in that context, like he really does know how you feel. Really good stuff. Well, Colby, this has been uh, fantastic. I could pick your mind all day about this book, but like we said, we don't want to give away all the pearls. So uh, listeners go out and, uh, and get the book for sure. Uh, where can people find you online? Thanks to my mom. I have a name that uh, <laughs> was pretty easy to grab all the early handles. So at Colby Martin, that'll get you on Instagram. That'll get you to me on Twitter. Uh, and you can just probably Google my name and my website comes up and books are there. So pretty easy to find. You have a preference of where people buy your book. I know some authors like one place versus another. Does it matter to you? 
It, no, it doesn't. No. Thanks for asking. Uh, I think, I think, you know, a lot of people, Amazon is super easy and quick, but then there's that part of you that's like, well, maybe I can support indie bookstores, local bookstores, yeah. maybe not put more money into Bezos pocket, but, uh, <laughs> but also it's just really efficient. Um, yeah. Good stuff. Well, Kobe, we'll have you back on again soon and, uh, have a good night. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks, bud. Work.